You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. This morning we're in uh, Luke 7. Um, You can open up there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we have one in the chair back that you're uh, welcome to take with you. If you don't have it, we're on page 596. We're starting in uh, verse 18. Let's read together. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's the Lord's word. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you that we can gather together as a body of believers and hear your word. Be with Jeremy as he brings it to us. Open our hearts, clear our minds, and help us to have this word change our lives and be an impact for you. I pray for a special blessing on those who can't be here in this congregation this morning, and I pray that you would heal them and comfort them, and we just lift these things up to you in your name. Amen, amen. Thank you, Jerry. Pilgrim's Progress is a book written in, get this, 1678. Has been through a ton of revisions and edits. Um, This one by C.J. Lovick is my favorite of the options out there because the English in 1678 is pretty old and gnarly and to be able to, I'm sure some of you can read it no problem for me and normal people. We need an updated version. And it's such a powerful book. In fact, you may have known this, it is the second most published book of all time up until 1950, uh, right behind the Bible for several hundred years. Bible, Pilgrim's Progress, the books that were more published than anything else, many folks would have on their nightstand, both of them. Because, because in Pilgrim's Progress, we get an allegory of the Christian life. And so many people have found this book helpful as it speaks to the very real interactions that we have as we track this guy named Christian who begins with this burden on his back. It's so heavy, guilt, sin, and shame. And as we watch him be able to come to the cross, conversion, he lays this sin down and he walks then through his life all the way to the celestial city. And There's these excellent adventures that mirror what we experience as Christians. And there's one interaction that I find particularly helpful. And that's when Christian and his journey mate named Hopeful, 
they're in this land where they get captured by a giant by the name of despair. Despair, gigantic, grabs them, arrests them, puts them in his dungeon. Doubting Castle's dungeon is where Christian and hopeful live. Check out this description. They had been there from Wednesday morning till Saturday night without one bit of bread or a drop of water or a ray of light or anybody to inquire about them. Giant despair after talking to his wife named Distrust decided to go down and beat them without mercy in the morning. The giant went out, found a short, thick club made from a crab tree, and he went down to the dungeon, and he began berating them and ranting at them as if they were dogs. Christian and hopeful didn't say a word in defense. And then giant despair pounced on them and beat them mercilessly. The beating was so bad that when it was finally over, they were unable to help themselves or even to get up off the dungeon's cold stone floor. Now, I grant the Bible doesn't have a proof text that says every Christian is going to have to walk through the land of giant despair, find themselves in Doubting Castle's dungeon. But it seems to me, most Christians I know at some point in their journey through, they find themselves wrestling with doubt and trying to make sense of how is God all good and how powerful when there is such clear suffering in our world? When we hear of all the tragedy that is happening around our world, when we hear of people seemingly innocent who are suffering terrible tragedies, people in power who are awful, and how do we make sense of that as Christians? I find it's normal for us to struggle with doubt. And there can be days we find ourselves in that dungeon feeling down. Wondering, what's the point here? Is there any hope? This morning we come to a text. As it were, as if Luke knew exactly what it was like to feel as if you are in Doubting Castle's dungeon. Luke, as it were, imagining that despair has given you a beating and, and you're wondering, what do I do? Luke 7 offers us great encouragement and hope. And what we find is we're not alone in suffering. Peace is possible. Hope is near. For anyone here this morning struggling with doubt, for anybody who's walked through seasons of despair, and I'm so glad you're here. And I hope this morning you find great encouragement. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Luke 7? We're going to walk through this passage. I want to show you what Luke has put there for us so that you can take great encouragement. Find yourself free of Doubting Castle's dungeon. There's, there's two questions that this text is going to answer for us. So there will be two parts to this sermon. Question one, here's where we're going to start. Do those who know Jesus ever struggle with doubt? Bunyan seems to think so in Pilgrim's Progress, but what does the Bible actually say? Do those who know Jesus ever struggle with doubt? I know our preaching passage spans the entire chapter 7, but I want to start with where Mr. Jerry was reading verse 18. So skip there, we'll catch up 
in a moment. For now, look at 18. And I want you to notice that in verse 18, we find disciples of John the Baptist being sent to Jesus with a very important question. It's there in 19. Are you the one to come or should we look for someone else? John the Baptist asking, are you the Messiah? Hey, Jesus, are you actually the Messiah? Because it seems that he thought he had been the Messiah, but now John the Baptist isn't so sure. He's in jail, we learned in chapter 3. That's why he sent two disciples to go on his behalf and ask this question. Already off the bat, we find some encouragement. For anybody wondering if doubt is real, look at John the Baptist. He knows Jesus and he's really struggling with doubt. Now, I realize some of you in here, you might have bought this idea that, well, if you're a really good Christian, you never struggle with doubt. I mean, I struggle with doubt because I'm not a really good Christian. But those other people, they're really good Christians. They don't struggle with doubt. Baloney. John is a really good Christian. This is the John who, when he was in utero with Elizabeth, his mom, you remember Mary walked in? And John started doing jumping jacks in her belly, <laughs> excited about the Messiah. This is, the, this is John the Baptist, who was the Malachi 3-1 man preparing the way for the Lord. He knew that's what he was about. His daddy told him, this is your mission, prepare the way for the Lord. He knew Jesus was the Lord. Well, good grief, John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan, right? And do you remember what happened after Jesus was baptized? An audible voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And the dove came down. John was there. This guy's a good Christian. And here he is in jail suffering. And it's been a while. John 3, or excuse me, Luke 3 is when he showed up in jail. And of course, the reason he's in jail is because King Herod had divorced his real wife, married his sister-in-law, Pretended like it was all okay. And John the Baptist said, baloney, that's sin, that's wrong. And Herod said, ha-ha, you're arrested now. Anything else you'd like to say? <laughs> and so here's John the Baptist suffering unjustly. Okay, he's, he's just speaking God's truth to Herod. That's what puts him in jail. And John the Baptist knows something. He knows that in the Old Testament, there are all of these promises about how the Messiah is coming to judge. And John the Baptist knows when Messiah comes, there will be judgment. And all that evil stuff that has happened is going to get turned around. All the pain and sorrow, all the tears, they're going to be reversed. And so John the Baptist is sitting in jail and he's going, are you this Messiah or should I look for another? Functionally saying, are you going to do this judgment thing or what? Because I thought you were the one, but it isn't happening. So look what, look what we find here. The encouraging answer to this first question. Do those who know Jesus ever struggle with doubt? If you're taking notes, write this down. Yes. Yes. Doubts are real. And if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, okay, pastor, I'm a Christian. I profess faith. Man, I'm... I even had my elder interview. I became a member of this church, but I'm really struggling with doubts. I would say, that makes sense to me because real Christians struggle with doubt. John the Baptist showing us doubts are real. 
Doubts are real, which means if you're here and you're struggling, you are not alone. Oh, I know you think you're alone. I think it's normal if you've been captured by that giant despair and put in his doubting jail. You think you're the only one in there. Hear, hear us. You're not alone. You're not the only one who's been, you're not the only one who's going to ever be there. Plenty of us have had to walk through that doubting dungeon. Some of us are still there. You're not alone. But what does Jesus say about being there? Look what Jesus says to John, who's in literal jail. Look at 22b. So important. Jesus says, hey, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In previous sermons, we've talked about how it could be really nice if we had what I like to call an Old Testament Geiger counter. That we just pull an app up on our phone and it would go beep, 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 beep. Anytime we're doing Old Testament stuff. If we had that, right now it would be going bananas. Because all of those phrases, it doesn't come from one Old Testament text, but it does come from all of these texts in the book of Isaiah. And here's what Jesus is doing in answer to John the Baptist's question. Jesus is saying, hey, go tell John, go tell John, you know what the Bible says, man. And hey, John, I'm doing it. John, you know Isaiah, and I'm doing what Isaiah says. The poor are hearing, the dead are raised, lepers are being healed. I'm doing what it says, man. You know I'm, I am who I say I am. I'm really the Messiah. And blessed are you who's not offended by me, which is meaning, blessed are you if you stick with me, John. Don't give up on me. Don't give up on me. Here then is the point to this first section. Having already established that those who know Jesus really, really well will struggle with doubt. What is the key to getting out of despair's dungeon? How do we make it out of doubting castle and back on our journey with Jesus? Here's what Jesus said to John, and it's the key for us. Remember what the Bible says. Remember what the Bible says. That is the key to getting, as a Christian, out of doubting dungeon. Remember what the Bible says. Now, frankly, if you guys already knew how the key worked, we could shut the sermon down right now because that, this is the sermon in the sentence. This is the whole deal. Remember what the Bible says. But, but my guess is you're actually like me when I was studying this and I go, oh, thanks, remember what the Bible says. I mean, that's great, John the Baptist can send a message to Jesus. I don't have Jesus' number to text, man, so how does it work? It almost can feel condescending to just go, hey, I made an appointment with a pastor. I told him I'm really struggling with doubt. And he looked at me and said, remember what the Bible says. Thanks a lot, man. wonder if I should start my own Mill Creek chat GPT and I'll just put that in as the answer to anybody who asks a question. I have a query for you. Remember what the Bible says. 
Now, my, my guess is you're like me and you would go, okay, but how? Like, how do I do that? How does the key actually work? How do I get out of doubting dungeon and into this life that God has promised for me? And as it turns out, that's the second part of our sermon because Luke is going to give us four steps. He's going to give us four paving stones that are a pathway out of the dungeon. He's going to say, this is how you use the key. And there's going to be a few moments in these four steps that you may feel like it's a little dense. I get it. There's a lot of Old Testament in this. I should warn you, if, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it might feel a little tricksy, but stick with it because it's really how you get out of Doubting Dungeon. This is Luke talking to us, helping us know how we can find peace. Where is hope? God is near. Here are the steps. Move with me then to our second question for the rest of the sermon. How do those struggling with doubt find peace? Step number one, Remember Elisha. Again, have your Bibles open. We're going to go back to the beginning of the chapter. Let me show you what's happening in verses 1 to 10. There at the beginning of chapter 7, if you scan over it with me, I know we didn't read it at the beginning, but now that we're looking at it, we find that there is this Gentile centurion military commander with the servant who is sick. The servant's on the deathbed. And some Jewish elders go to Jesus and they go, man, this centurion, he's like a really good guy. Would you heal his servant? And Jesus goes, all right. And he heads that way. Somehow the centurion hears that they're coming and he sends another delegation to say, whoa, 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 Jesus. I am unworthy for you to come to my home, but I know that I have authority and I can just tell people to do stuff. And they say, yes, sir. And I trust you have authority, Jesus. So just say the word, and I know that my servant's going to be healed. And look there at verse 9. Jesus says, Jesus marvels. It's the only place in the whole book of Luke that Jesus is marveling. And Jesus marvels and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And that's the first little passage that's here in Luke, which shows us to remember Elisha. Which if you're tracking with me, you would go, how in the world are you telling me to remember Elisha based on that deal? Well, here's what I found out. If you, here's what I learned. If you just flip back to Luke 4 for a second, look at Luke 4, 27. If you look back to Luke 4, 27, Jesus is preaching a sermon and he says, many lepers were in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And what Jesus is doing here in this passage is something so remarkably identical to 2 Kings 17. I know it's dense, stick with me. There with Elisha and Naaman the Syrian, get this, you have a Gentile military commander who asks for healing from a prophet in Israel through an intermediary. And what do we have in our text? But a Gentile military commander who asks for healing from a prophet in Israel through an intermediary. And just in case you're not convinced, every commentary I read said, this is Elisha connection. I said, okay, well, what in the world does that mean? Here's what Luke is doing. As John the Baptist is in jail and struggling and his, his reader is asking the question, like, what do I do when I'm struggling with doubt and evil and suffering? He's saying, well, remember Elisha? 
Because Jesus is like Elisha, just better. Jesus is cut from the same cloth like Elisha, but he can do more. So you may be struggling to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but you believe in Elisha, right? And all of Israel would go, well, yeah, I mean, Elisha's like top 10 prophets. If you were going to go to Israel's Old Testament Hall of Fame, Elisha's got a bust there in the Hall of Fame. And I remember Elisha, and now we have Jesus doing something that's like Elisha, just more powerful. Elisha had to go through some stuff with Naaman, but Jesus, he just says the word. So that's our step one. You got to remember Elisha. And just in case you're like, well, I'm not sure that's actually Luke's intention. What I want you to get, and I, and I say this every week because it's really helping us how we read the book of Luke. If we were to just have studied verses 1 to 10, we would have rightly come out of that passage if that was the whole sermon and we talk about humility and, and God's authority and, and how the centurion really understood faith and all of that would be fine and dandy. But we know that one of Luke's purposes is putting these stories in the order he picked. He tells us in chapter 1 verse 3, he tells Theophilus, his audience, I gave you an orderly account, which means, church, he didn't just late Saturday night think, man, I got to get this book done and published. So I'm just going to slap some stuff together. Saturday night special, willy nilly. Here's the stories. Blah. Instead, Luke is really purposeful with how he put these things together. And preaching the way we do through these passages at this pace forces us to ask the question, well, what he's doing? And I'm telling you confidently, his first step for getting out of despair's dungeon is remember Elisha. Move with me to 11 to 17. Here's the next step. Here's the second paver. It's remember Elijah. Scan there with me, 11 to 17. What we find is Jesus is going to a town where a mother is burying her only son. Of course, in that culture, she is going to be so vulnerable. Nobody's going to care for her. And they are almost out of town when they come upon this gal who's got this big crowd behind her. Jesus sees them, verse 12, and he does the unbelievable. He does the unthinkable. In Jewish culture, they've got the pallbearers have this open casket on their shoulders. Jesus reaches in and touches a dead body. In case you missed the memo from Leviticus, you don't do that. Ain't nobody got time for the ceremonial cleansing that needs to happen from defiling yourself with the corpse. You don't do that. Jesus does. <laughs> and then, as far as I'm concerned, this would be like the scariest moment in any horror show. I won't watch horror movies because this thing scares me to death, but that's what I imagine it's like. You got a dead body sitting on some shoulders on a procession, and all of a sudden that dead body goes, Bing! <laughs> That dead body is now alive. Jesus said the word. And all of a sudden, I imagine he's rubbing his eyes and he's going, mm, what's up? And everybody goes, oh, gosh. And you got a live kid in his own funeral saying, hey, what's everybody doing here? Oh, you were dead. Now you're not. So we're not going to be burying you no more. <laughs> Look at the text, 16. Fear seized them all. You think? <laughs> and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about Jesus spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Of course this report spread 
There was a kid who's dead, who's now alive, which reminds us of another Old Testament figure that if you look in Luke 4, Jesus also mentioned in that sermon. Look at Luke 4, verse 25. Jesus says, There were a lot of widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but he went to one specific widow. And if you want to go do your cross-reference there with Elijah, it's 1 Kings 17, where, get this, eventually that widow, she loses her son. And he's dead in the upstairs bathroom in 1 Kings. And Elijah shows up at that house. He climbs those stairs, and he lays down on that body three times. Three times he lays down, and he prays that that body would come back to life. And the body comes back to life. And that widow gets her son in 1 Kings but here's the other thing to know. What, whereas Elisha is like in the Hall of Fame, if you were to ask Israelites, who is the Old Testament goat prophet? Goat, uh, greatest of all time. Who is the goat prophet of all time? I mean, you could have a debate on who's in the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament prophets. You know, who's the four most famous Old Testament prophets. I don't think Elisha's making Mount Rushmore on that discussion. You know, you got some talking heads on a Monday morning talking about who it is, but... but but undoubtedly, Isaiah's going to be up there. You've, you've for sure got Elijah up there, just in case you forgot to brush up on your Old Testament prophet top 10 list uh, over breakfast this morning. There you have it. In fact, if you asked Israelites who is the goat, there was consensus. It is Elijah. And what Luke's doing then is he's saying, for those who are struggling with doubt, if you want to know, is Jesus who he says he is, remember Elisha? Because Jesus is doing stuff like Elisha with the centurion, but he's also doing stuff like Elijah. Except when Jesus heals this body, when Jesus brings this kid back to life, he doesn't have to lay down on that body three times. Jesus is so powerful, he just says the word. Which makes you go, man, I, yeah, I mean, I believe in Elijah. Everybody believes in Elijah. I'm not struggling to believe if Elijah is who he says he was. I really think he was. He's the goat. Well, there's Jesus doing something even better than Elijah. Encouragement for us. That's the second point. That's the second paver stone in this pathway. Look at the third. It's John the Baptist. Pick up with me at 24. This is after what we already looked at. Jesus has sent those disciples to say, I'm doing what Isaiah says I'm supposed to do, John. Hold on. Believe me. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and he compliments John the Baptist. He says, John the Baptist never gave in to cultural pressures. He's no reed shaken by the wind. And John the Baptist wasn't about his comfort. He's not like some king lounging in luxurious blankets. No, no. John the Baptist really was the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. And then Jesus gives us his opinion of who the Old Testament goat prophet is. See it there in the text? According to Jesus, it's not Elisha. It's not Elijah. Look who it is. Answer 28. There is none greater than John. I guess if you're a prophet, that feels pretty good. Man, all of a sudden, nobody would have had John on their Mount Rushmore of prophets there in Israel. But now John just got installed and he's like the best. That feels good. But notice verse 29. Because we'll check this out. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Now, wait a minute. How is it that all of a sudden 
Jesus is, is, is saying, I can just take actually anybody I want who's least in my kingdom and I can put them on the Mount Rushmore. I can actually make you the goat. I just say it and it's true. What in the world is happening here? Can it really be true that those who are least in the kingdom of God, those who are least among the people of Christ, can actually be greater than John the Baptist the greatest of all time prophet according to Jesus? Well, that leaves the crowd polarized. Tax collectors love it, verse 29. That makes sense. They love it. The religious leaders hate it. And Jesus calls out those religious leaders in verse 32. He says, hey, there was some funeral music, which was John the Baptist's sermons, in case you didn't know. His sermons were fire and brimstone. They sounded like a funeral dirge. Ain't nobody got him on their playlist probably because it's kind of downer. He goes, you didn't like the funeral music. And then Jesus says, I came, I was playing you the wedding music. I was playing straight bangers and you didn't like those either. Of course, Jesus referring to him here feasting and drinking and nobody wanted to hear that song. And he's saying, hey, religious leaders, you're just a bunch of finicky kids. You don't like that song. You don't like this song. You don't like anything. You're like my kids with some of the TV apps on our show. There's like 50 million shows to watch. I don't want to watch any of them. That's what the religious leaders are doing. <laughs> Here then is Luke's point. Here's what Luke is, is trying to get us to see. If you're trying to work through your doubt, if you're feeling stuck and alone in this despair's dungeon... The way to get out is by remembering the Bible. Remember Elisha because Jesus is better than him. And, and remember Elijah because Jesus is better than him. And then remember John the Baptist because, because Jesus can actually make anybody he wants greater than John the Baptist. Which shows us Jesus isn't just a prophet. I mean, fine. If you want to sit down and say, well, is Jesus the true and greatest prophet? Yes, of course, if that's the way you ask it, and that's fine, but what Jesus is doing is he's showing us he's altogether different than anybody who would call themselves an Old Testament prophet. He's not just somebody that's in the prophet hall of fame. He's altogether different because he is so powerful as God. He's a different type of being. He can, by his power, unilaterally put anybody on the goat list that he wants. That's how powerful Jesus is. He's different than the prophets. He is the prophet maker. And that's a different animal. Okay? That's what Luke's showing us. So if you have to grant Elisha's real and you grant Elijah's real, you grant John the Baptist's real, oh man, look at what Jesus is. And, and, and if the Spirit's doing this work right now, in your spirit, you can kind of feel this like, ooh, yeah, because that's Bible. That's nothing to do with Jeremy. That's just what the Word is saying here. Those are the three steps, but we have one more. And this Perhaps the most powerful. Final step to get out of the dungeon of despair. Remember you are unworthy. Remember you are unworthy. Here in the last section, we see one of the most beautiful and emotional stories in all of the book of Luke. Jesus has been invited to a religious leader's house to eat. This religious leader's name is Simon. And the custom in their culture was warm hospitality. You would be greeted customarily with Kiss like Italians do. Kiss on this cheek, kiss on that cheek. You'd be greeted with a 
basin to be able to clean your feet because it's nasty dirty at that time. You'd be greeted with some olive oil to put on your face and your hair to freshen you up a little bit. That'd be before the meal. But this religious leader who has invited Jesus to dinner, he does none of that. And it was custom and everybody knew he's not doing the normal stuff. But there is somebody at that party who does. There at the dinner party, there is a, a woman of the night, and everybody knew she was, a prostitute. She comes in, and she, in front of everybody who's watching at that dinner party, she does the unthinkable. She does what is culturally outrageous. Like if I got invited to my home Super Bowl family watching party and I show up in Eagles gear, that's nothing compared to what this lady does, okay? You think that's cringy? This, this is. I looked up cringy in the encyclopedia and there was a picture of this gal. That's the point. Here it is. This, this woman walks into the most dignified black tie dinner and then she, so desperate to get close to Christ, 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet Jesus' feet with her tears, and she wiped them, the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. That act would be just as weird today as it was then. You didn't do this, especially a woman of that reputation. She was humiliating herself, but as far as she's concerned, who cares? Because it's Jesus. Here he is. He's the one. Could it be true that Jesus really can take a person who is the furthest down on the popularity ladder in all of Israelite culture. Is it true that Jesus could take least in the kingdom, even a woman of the night who is so undignified, could Jesus really have the power to make her the greatest? I like to think that she was there when Jesus was preaching that sermon and complimenting John the Baptist. She might be on the fringe going, is there a chance for a woman like me? And the mistakes I've made? Yes, there is. And what this woman realized is she no longer needed to be ashamed or alone in her sin. Hope was near. God was here. Peace. Finally, for this woman, peace. I can have peace from all of my guilt and sin and shame. It doesn't matter what you guys think. It doesn't matter that I'm making a fool of myself. Here he is, the true Christ. Well, that Pharisee Simon, verse 39, says, well, if Jesus, you really were a great prophet, because obviously you're not, you would know she was this awful sinner. Jesus, in response, asks him a question. Which forgiven debtor loves more? The one who's forgiven a little or the one who's forgiven a lot? And Simon the Pharisee answers, 
seems quite smug. The one, I suppose, who's been forgiven a lot. Jesus says, that's the right answer, but now you need to get this, Simon. Jesus drives his point home. I came here, and you didn't give me any water for my feet. But that gal hasn't stopped wiping my feet with her tears. That's hospitality. I came here, you're supposed to customarily greet me with a kiss. You did nothing. She can't stop kissing my feet. I came here, you're supposed to give me some oil to freshen up. You didn't give me anything. But that woman of the night, she's poured ointment on my feet. And because of her great love, she, her sins are forgiven. Oh, bless the Lord. And then Jesus turned to her. Look at the end of seven. It's our last verse. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here then, church, is our final step to making it out of this dungeon of doubt. If we're struggling to reconcile, how do we make sense of God and his power in the view of suffering and the evil that's unjust? And as we look around and we notice many are being victimized and, and, and wrongly hurt, God, when will you show up? As we wrestle with that question, what Luke is offering to us is this, remember what the Bible says. And I know there's days, church, when our faith feels flimsy. I feel it too. But on those days, we find freedom by remembering what the Bible says. Jesus isn't just Elisha. He's not just Elijah. He's not John the Baptist. He's altogether different. He's the one who can take any of us, least in the kingdom of God, and put us as the greatest prophet. Imagine, church, if you went to Mount Rushmore and my face was on there. That's what Jesus does. All of you would be like, that's the weirdest Mount Rushmore I've ever seen. There's Washington and Lincoln and Pastor Jeremy. I got no business up there. Only person taking a picture, that's my mom. But Jesus will do that with you. Remember what the Bible says. Jesus is powerful enough. He can do anything. He can make the least in the kingdom of God the greatest if we remember we are unworthy. See, in response then, church, we have to ask this question. Are we going to respond like that woman or like that Pharisee? How will we respond to God's great power? Are we going to, like the Pharisee, ignore our sin or hide beneath some thin veneer of obedience as if we're entitled to be in the kingdom of God because of our great track record? Or will we be courageous like this woman, culturally outrageous, desperate in repentance, knowing Jesus really forgives all who grant that they are unworthy? what the Bible says. He will forgive all who are unworthy, who will confess their sins. Here, friends, is the gospel moment from this text. For while this woman was saved and granted peace, while the kingdom of God welcomed a brand new believer, these religious leaders could not rejoice in the woman's forgiveness because sin had blinded them to God's great mercy. 
until we get how unworthy we are, church, we will not really understand Christ's redeeming love for the world. We have to see our deep and tragic sin. So church, do you see it? Do you see in this final step the comfort that Luke's offering to those suffering and doubting? Luke wanting us to know, if you're suffering in Doubting Castle, you are not alone. Hope is near. Peace is here. It's possible. You don't have to stay in that dungeon. You can be free. And how is it then that we actually are able to receive this peace? How is it that this woman could ultimately be granted peace that she never has to suffer alone? She doesn't have to pay the price for her sins. It's because of what Jesus did for her and the world on the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus took the sin of all the world, including this scandalous woman and all of her sin, including all of us and our scandalous sins. He took them upon himself. Jesus, as it were, went in to doubting prison. He went to despair's dungeon and he took the beating that we deserved. And he didn't just get beaten within a inch of his life. He got beaten to death at the cross. He paid the ultimate price. He took the death that we deserve so we could have true peace. He lived perfectly. He deserved none of it. We have lived awfully, sinfully, and we deserve eternal death. But Jesus is willing to trade us. Because of the gospel, he's giving us this hope. Here then is the hope I want us to have. Hope that will never disappoint. This is how you use that key. This is the sermon in a sentence. Remember what the Bible says. This is how you get out of despair. Remember Elisha. Remember Elijah. Remember John the Baptist. Remember you are unworthy. Final thought, and then I promise I'll pray and sit down. If you're here. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, you've not trusted in him, but you are wrestling through this question. If you're here and you're finding yourself going, yeah, well, what are you Christians? What is your Christian answer to evil and suffering? And you find our answer unsatisfactory. And, uh, you, you don't, you're not satisfied by our answer. Here's my final thought for you. If the Christian worldview, which says... One day, suffering will be addressed. One day, God is going to take all the wrong things and he's going to make them right. One day, all the pain, all the innocent people, all the victims, all of that is going to be judged. And justice will rain down. If the Christian worldview is true, wouldn't you wish that to be for you? You may not right now be a Christian but if you could push a button and make the Christian worldview true, wouldn't you want to push that button? Because in the Christian worldview, we actually have an answer to suffering. Even though right now, we're still waiting in the already not yet, someday justice will come. One day, we're all going to see every knee bow. And all the people who were horrible people will be judged rightly. Those who trust in Christ will be saved. So I don't know what your worldview is if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus. 
but I'm suggesting, what answer do you have to evil and suffering? Because I'm not sure you've got a better one than Christianity. And I'm thinking you would want this to be true if you could pick. Well, I hope you'll chew on that. If you don't know Jesus, I hope you'll read his words, see his answers. For now, though, let me pray. Christ, I thank you for the chance to study and preach through Luke 7. And I, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would take your word and you would feed your people. For those who do know you, give courage. For those who are struggling with despair and doubt, I pray this pathway would guide them. For those who don't know you, I pray they would surrender today. Do it, Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.